From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Today we're headed back once again to Paris, France, not literally, but in our minds. That's of course where the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, is based, and that's what's keeping tax practitioners really busy these days. The OECD is building a new international tax system with its two-pillar plan, the first of which would reallocate a sliver of the profits of the largest and most profitable businesses to countries where they make sales, and the second pillar, which would establish a 15% global minimum tax. We're going to hear an update on how this is going from Tim Sarson, a partner and head of tax policy at KPMG UK. And we should say, since we spoke with Tim, the OECD has released two more consultations on Pillar 1. News is moving quickly, so make sure to check out Bloomberg Tax for the latest developments. But now on to our conversation. Tim spoke with Bloomberg Tax's Hamza Ali about the new rules coming out of the OECD and what to make of them. This has been something going on for a few years now. In fact, they've been talking about digital till since the, the early 2010s. And it's really focused on dealing with the perceived um, tax strategies or the perceived unfair uh, tax avoidance of, of large di- digital businesses. It's come quite a long way from, from, from there if you, you kind of start to look at what, what the, the two pillars are about. Um, so, so first of all, we have what's called Pillar 1. Um, pillar one is essentially um, a mechanism for, for for reallocating the profits of multinationals from uh, one jurisdiction to another. So broadly speaking, from jurisdictions where um, they're currently making significant what, what's called residual profits, that's often headquarter locations or IP holding locations, um, to jurisdictions where they have large uh, customer markets. Pillar two is different. Pillar two is uh, what we, we know as the global minimum tax or uh, GLOBE. You'll hear people referring to, to GLOBE. And that is about setting a 15% minimum tax rate for uh, for large multinationals, not quite as uh, as big as the, the threshold um, for, for pillar one, but for large multinationals who, who are operating in countries that otherwise would, they'd be paying uh, less than 15%. For those who have been following along um, this sort of last three months, the first sort of quarter of this year, um, we've seen you know letters flying around from business lobbies and consultations coming from the OECD, um, like a it's sort of like a cloud of butterflies at the moment. <laughs> but um, have you um, can you walk us through um, what the consultation process has been like um, this year and what um, the OECD has been sort of asking questions on? Sure. So what the OECD does um, is it, it breaks down. So in the middle, they're in the middle of uh, consultations, particularly on pillar two at the moment. Um, it, it breaks down the proposals into a number of component parts. Um, once the, the draft proposals have been um, published and, and guidance has been published, we've had a number of what I would call mini consultations on elements of the rules. So whether that's uh, how you establish um, the nexus of taxation, whether that's how you you work out what might seem like a simple question, but how do you work out what the tax rate is uh, that a company is paying in a particular country? They then put them out for consultation to anyone who wants to respond so that they'll be published um, on the OECD's website. Um, And then they give everyone two weeks to uh, respond. Now, um, to, but by by comparison, consultations that are put out by national governments on on pr- proposed national changes to legislation. So in the UK, for example, we complain if they only give us three months. Um, so two weeks to turn around a response to a consultation is really quite something. Um, but I think the idea is they want to make sure that if they they've 
proposed anything that's really stupid, um, that business has an opportunity to, to tell them this just isn't going to work. What it isn't, though, is a sort of open-ended call for suggestions as to how they might want to tweak um, the rules. They've pretty much by that point made the political decision as to how it's going to work and they just want people by exception to uh, to flag if there's anything really bad about what they're proposing. Um, and what have been the sort of key takeaways from the consultations that have dropped so far? Uh, the, the single biggest takeaway, um, and it's not necessarily something that, that OECD wants to, to hear, um, but it's that everyone in business is really crying out for at least a year um, extra before they have to to implement this. Um, we've we've seen, I suppose, for business, in, encouraging signs coming out of the EU um, in the last couple of weeks. There is a proposal out there that they will delay implementation until uh, twenty twenty four and five. Um, it's likely that other uh, countries um, outside the EU or US would follow suit. So I would expect, for example, that the UK would 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 look to to delay, although they haven't they haven't confirmed that. And of course, the US. Um, political process means that it seems highly unlikely that they would be ready to have something which was completely OECD compliant in, in a year anyway. So that is the number one um, piece of feedback, although that's not really what the consultations are asking about. Uh, the reason that's important is because, to be honest, most taxpayers don't have enough technical detail yet about exactly how the rules will work to be able to comment um with, with that much confidence um, on what is going to be difficult and what's not going to be difficult. So you're sort of asking them to, to, to comment on, on proposals which at high level might or might not seem uh, reasonable, but actually the devil's in the details. It was only when they, they get to start trial running what it means to comply that, that some of the, the skeletons come out of the closet. And have there sort of been any, um, I guess, interesting um, details come out of the consultations um, that you weren't expecting? And I'm thinking about, you know, sort of clarifications on, on how the rules themselves work. Um, I, I think, um, I mean, there, 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 is, there is still some uncertainty on, on how exactly some of the rules around, for example, deferred tax and, and timing differences are going to work. Um, but, I, but I think um, the, the closeness, closeness or otherwise of um, the, the calculations or the way that uh, numbers are determined under um, Pillar 2 for, for example, the tax base or for what counts as accounting profits um, compared with what companies have to do for country by country reporting or compared with what they have to do with their, their tax returns was, was always going to be one of the, the trickiest areas. Um, and I know that um, most multinationals, if asked, would, would ideally have a system where essentially um, the numbers that they're having to to come up with for um, for pillar two purposes are exactly the same as those that come out of the the accounts um, and all those that they they file their tax returns on. I think where we've ended up, um, if you look at some of the deferred tax rules, is is something in between. So essentially, the principle is that you follow you follow deferred tax uh, principles, you follow tax accounting principles up to a point. Um, but then for any timing differences that are more than five years, for example, um, you, you have some, some adjustments. The same with losses. So there are some useful provisions in there that enable you to take into account the fact that um, in, in the world of tax, companies might make losses in one year, but offset them against profits in another year. Um, but they're not giving full um, full equality, essentially, between um, what happens in the tax return and what happens for Pillar 2, particularly in the transition between the, the sort of pre and post um, introduction of, of the regime. Mm. Uh, you touched a little bit on this already, but are there sort of any easy ways that the OECD can sort of simplify these rules to make them sort of easier to comply with? 
first first thing I think that the threshold for um, for qualifying as um, as needing to comply with with pillar two um, because it's essentially uh, along the lines of the threshold for country by country reporting um, absolute and complete alignment between what triggers you to to, to be an, under the scope of country by country reporting and what triggers you to, to have to uh, file pillar two. Um, would certainly simplify things. And that includes what happens if, for example, you're in one year, out the other, um, you go in and out over a few years. So if you're hovering around that threshold, that's where things can get uh, complicated. So that would be number one. Uh, yes, I, I, I'd mentioned alignment between accounting, um, so so between GAP and the, the numbers that you put in your, your calculations for Pillar 2, ab- absolutely um, vital as well. And th- the same applies for Pillar 1, by the way. So the way that, for example, um, routine or non-routine uh, and, and residual profits are calculated under Pillar 1, the more aligned that can be with accounting principles, the better. Of course, we have different we have different gap in different uh, countries, different regions, but there's no reason why it can't be f- at least fully aligned to something like IFRS. Um, ultimately, you know, this becomes a process after a few years, once companies have gone through the initial teething, um, that can become increasingly automated. It becomes yet another thing for the tax function to do. So I think a lot of the simplification, a lot of the benefit of simplification is, um, at the start of the the new regime when, when companies are are kind of struggling to work out how to comply with it. Um, one other thing, which is really in the hands of, of local, Fisks rather than of the OECD, but really important is there's a whole panoply of anti-abuse, anti-avoidance uh, rules at domestic level at the moment, which are, are aimed at dealing with a lot of the same perceived abuses that the Pillar One and, and Pillar Two are, are dealing with. Um, you take that the UK's diverted profits tax would be an example. You take um, general anti-abuse rules in a number of countries, Australia, etc. If they're targeted at the same thing that Pillar 2 is getting at, and Pillar 2 is quite a blunt instrument, it essentially eliminates, it eliminates tax planning below 15% for, for large corporations. And why do you need all these other rules as well? So a bit of a tidying up of existing legacy anti-abuse rules would, would really, really help, I think. Mm. Um, and are there sort of any um, specific bits of the rules that are sort of proving tricky for companies to get their head around um, I mean, I've heard a few companies sort of complain about um, record keeping that they um, had to do from November last year, even before the rules <laughs> were sort of put in place. Are there sort of elements like that which are sort of proving tricky for companies uh, to figure out? Um, I, I'd say if I look across um, the, the companies that, that I work with, probably only 5 to 10% of them have, have, have really gone into detail as to how they're going to comply with the rules so far because they've been waiting and seeing so they were waiting for um, consensus and agreement which happened they're then waiting for the the um, uh, for, for the commentary and the commentary has helped clarify quite a lot um, but I think for most of them it's still a bit too too early to work out what the, the big problems are going to be but the, but the, the, the sticking points um, certainly that um, that, that, that my clients have, have come up against are the fact that they're having to derive data that is cut in. I mean, it's along the lines of what I was talking about, about before. They're having to derive data that is cut in a different way from the way they have to get to extract data for, for CBCR, different from the way that they extract data for their, their transfer pricing uh, reporting as well. So it's yet another 
call that is going to be made on their, their systems and on their accounting um, to, to, to start flagging items in a particular way. So it's, it's really it's the operational challenge, I think. I, I wouldn't say that there has been anything, aside from some of the points I was talking about before, anything kind of technical that, is, that, that stands out from, from the proposals that is particularly difficult to deal with in, in its own right. It, it's simply the fact that you've got to draw data in a different way from, from how you're used to doing it. And, and it's not the way that, for example, ERP systems have often been set up. Mm. And uh, just as a sort of final question, um, one of the big things we've been sort of hearing is that uh, a large uh, outstanding issue in the negotiations um, around Pillar 1, the reallocation rule, um, is uh, an issue around the, uh, which country is going to surrender um, taxing rights under Pillar 1. Uh, can you walk us through um, what the issue is and sort of uh, describe why it's proving a, a tricky problem? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so the issue is that the idea behind Pillar 1 is that, um, and I'll put this in sort of really crude terms, that you've got a big profit-making, low-tax company over here that's making residual profits of tens of, of percent. And then you've got a whole load of uh, routine, uh, low-margin companies in markets that are making small distribution margins. And, and the way that, um, that, that the Pillar 1 proposals define residual profit is essentially excess profit is anything over 10% um, margin on a consolidated basis. Um, so it, the world that Pillar 1 has been designed for is where you have one country that sort of gives away a load of excess profit or redistributes it. So that's the one that sort of pushes it out. And then a whole load of other beneficiary um, countries which will get extra profit attributed to them. Um, wh where it becomes a lot more difficult is um, in scenarios where that's not how it works. So, so let's take a, a scenario where you've got a, a decentralised uh, business where there might be a number of uh, companies uh, across the, the world that are making more than 10%. And there's not even um, at the moment a confirmation that 10% would be the threshold for um, reallocation on a country by country basis anyway. At the moment, you're just looking at whether a, a company has profits over 10% overall, that's your amount A, and that's the amount that then gets redistributed. And then you've got these calculations of so-called amount B, what's what's your sort of minimum amount that you're allowed to, to keep. If you've got multiple countries that particularly that, that potentially are earning more than that threshold, and then a number of others that are earning less, then you've got a situation where it's kind of difficult to work out well who's surrendering what to whom. Um, it, it ceases to be a bilateral or an obviously bilateral arrangement or reallocation. It becomes multilateral. And that then plays havoc with how this works from a competent authority, a treaty, a um a, a conflict a dispute resolution perspective and and the fact is I'd, I'd like to be able to say well here's how here's what's proposed at the moment and here are the problems with it or or here's how it works but the fact is there is nothing proposed at the moment that's still to be to be worked out and and, and you can imagine this is both for, for pillar one and for pillar two but, um one of the things that the oecd and member countries have really got to get right is proper dispute resolution so that you don't end up with double taxation, um, either double taxation by design or double taxation because it's just so difficult to work out and head scratching to work out how you get relief from double taxation that you don't bother. That was Tim Sarson with KPMG UK speaking with Liber Tax's Hamza Ali. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. 
Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, and Meg Shreve. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor, and our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.